to 12. Romans chapter 12. Where Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Just looking back at what we've looked at in previous weeks as we've uh, come into this section, we've seen how Paul in chapters 1 to 11 has set out the sheer wonder and majesty of God's love, the good news, the gospel that he preaches and that we are delighted to preach, how God has made it possible for us to know him. It's all set out there in chapters 1 to 11, and Paul expounds it. He deals with any possible objections, explains it all, and ends with just a, a song of worship, all oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Worship comes out of an appreciation of truth. It's not just about singing songs. It's about being profoundly moved by who God is and what God has done. And Paul is clearly moved as he launches into those concluding verses of chapter 11, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And for from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Then what's our response to be? Well, he begins in chapter 12 to set out that response. Therefore, in the light of all of this, how do we respond? Well, we just give ourselves unreservedly to God. That's our worship, a whole life that is given over to him. And he says, as we have a high view of God, then we get a realistic view of ourselves. We think of ourselves soberly in accordance with the measure of faith God has given us. We're not, we don't live in a me-centered world anymore. We, we live in a God-centered world. We see how great He is and cuts us down to size. We're not the, the center of the world. He is. We have a realistic view of ourselves. And also, we see our need of other people, that we're part of a body. We, we, we worship God. We see who we are. We see what God has done for us, and then we reach out to others. That's what he's setting out here. And he talks about the different functions that... We have in the, the body of Christ, the church being like a body, different limbs, different functions, all needing one another, all coordinating with one another and moving together as one to create a healthy body. 
That's what he's talking about. And last time we were looking at this, we saw the first thing that he mentions, the, the gift of prophecy. We saw there that because God is personal, he speaks. When Jesus was with his disciples, they could talk with him about anything and he would talk with them. But he, he told them he was about to leave them. But he said, but I won't leave you bereft. I won't leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. Well, who could take his place? Well, he was giving his Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit gives a gift of prophesying where God speaks to us. And it's not just us talking to God and wishing we could hear from God. No, we hear from God, the prophetic gift. We looked at that last time. Then it may appear that Paul goes from one extreme to another. He speaks about the gift of prophesying in verse 6. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. And it's, does he say, and at the other extreme, if it's just serving people? Well, are these two extremes? Well, actually, no. And that's what I want us to see this morning, how I don't know if this is an order of priority, but serving is certainly way up there towards the top. We're the body of Christ. Corporately, we're expressing who Jesus is. That's the church. It's meant to show the world who Jesus is, what he's like, and what he says. So let's look at Jesus with regard to this second gift that is mentioned here. If it's serving, let him serve. Back in the Old Testament, in Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah 52, Isaiah is looking forward to one who is going to come. And in Isaiah 52, verse 13, he brings God's word. God says, see, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness, and so on. It's speaking here about Jesus, whose appearance was disfigured at the cross. And how's he, what's he called? See, my servant. The servant of the Lord. That's who Isaiah speaks about as he looks into the mists of time and he sees dimly what's going to come. He sees one who is God's servant, and in chapter 53, he goes on to speak wonderfully about this servant. No beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we would desire him. Despised and rejected by men. Who is this? Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God. Pierced for our transgressions. This is the Son of God. The servant of God. And Jesus identified himself in those ways, in that way rather, as one who came to serve. If you would turn to Matthew, Mark rather, chapter 10, a fascinating little glimpse of how different Jesus is. Mark chapter 10, we read in verse 35, two of the disciples, James and John, come to Jesus and say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever you ask. You know, it's that sort of question, will you do something for me? And if you're wise, you wait to hear what it is before you say yes or no. They're asking that kind of question. 
We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Wisely, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And here is their answer. Let one of us sit at your right and the other on your left in your glory. They have a sense of Jesus setting up a kingdom. They clearly haven't understood it yet, but they understand that much, that Jesus is destined for authority. They've understood that. And they can only think of it in worldly terms. So if Jesus is destined for authority, and if they are his special friends, well then, hey, there are 12 disciples, but they can only be one each side. Well, let's get in there. One of the other gospels indicated that perhaps their mother put, it up for, uh, put them up to it. But anyway, that's the question. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. And he goes on to explain the total, how totally inappropriate their question is. But then you read on to verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. They're indignant that James and John got in first. And they've clearly got the same kind of mindset that Jesus is going to have authority. We are his disciples, and it's not right that two get in first. Jesus can appoint who he wants, but they're still thinking in those terms. And Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, of the nations, lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. What? Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. What is he talking about? He, this is totally upside down. Yes, yeah, surely. Those who are regarded as rulers of the nations lord it over them. That's their privilege to have dignity. Well, this weekend, celebrating the jubilee of the queen, and there will be all the pomp and show, the queen in her carriage. and so It's entirely appropriate. She's the monarch. She's honored. That's how it is. But Jesus says, not so with you. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And then this, for even the Son of Man, that's himself, Jesus, the Son of God, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's setting a high standard before them, not so with you, and then he points to himself and says, well, hey, I'm... I'm the son of God. He calls himself the son of man, but that's who he's talking about. He's picking up an image that Daniel speaks of, one who comes from God and goes to God. And he says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. They're thinking, when you're in a position of authority, can we be either side of you? He said, I didn't come for that. I came to serve people, the servant of the Lord. Then how did that work out? Well, let's turn on to John chapter 13. It's an incredible chapter. But we see what Jesus understood by being a servant and how totally upside down this is and how totally contrary to normal human expectations and, dare one say, 
even expectations in the church. Well, John chapter 13. This is the Last Supper. Just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. This is what he'd been heading towards. And he knows he's heading back to heaven and he knows the route. Having loved his own who are in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Then this, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. The way John puts it there, it's like this is a step forward in Jesus' understanding of his mission and his destiny. We don't know how much he knew all the way through. Clearly he knew more than the disciples knew, but it's like there's an unfolding plan being revealed to him by his heavenly Father, and now he's got the picture. And he knows everything's under his power. He's come from God, and he's going back to God. Hey, this is real authority. This is real status. He's come from God, and he's going back to God. What does he do? So, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, of course, washing people's feet is not a custom that we would normally engage in, and uh, we might think, I'm not going to let anyone wash my feet. And indeed, it can become a bit religious. I don't know if you've seen things on television of the Archbishop of Canterbury and ceremonial occasions washing people's feet. And it's all very ornate and very religious. This was not religious. This was the sort of thing that the lowest order of domestic servant would do. When people came in from the street, obviously open sandals, without socks, open sandals, and their feet are dusty and dirty from where they've been. They'd come in and and the host would ensure that there was a a servant there who, as people discarded their sandals at the door, just washed the dust off their feet. And you'd maybe, if you were invited to a party, that would be happening. You'd be talking to other guests. You're not even looking at the person who does that to your feet. I mean, they're just doing it. But you're there as a, a guest at a party and you're engaging in conversation. That's the sort of job that a nobody will do. And Jesus does it. At that moment, when he knows everything's under his power, he's come from God, he's going back to God, does he throw his weight around? Yeah, the rulers of the Gentiles. That's the sort of thing. They, they throw their weight around. Well, they've got the right to. Anyone had the right to do it. It's the Son of God. And he does this. And then he says later, Do you know? Do you know what I've done? Now, we need to see what Jesus is doing here. He's the servant of the Lord. And the first thing here is, he is not affected by his status. 
He's come from God and is returning to God. Realizing his authority, realizing his power, he doesn't think, well, my status means I'm excused from jobs like that. I'm best employed doing things that befit my kind of gifting. Other people with a different kind of gifting, they can do that. But really, I need to be about more important things. He's not affected by his status. It's all too easy for us, perhaps, for some of us, to be aware of our education, aware of what we've been trained to do, aware of the status we have at work, or aware of the status we have in the church. And we think, there are some, some jobs it's not really appropriate for me to do. Other people can do that, but my training fits me for something altogether different. Jesus is not affected by his status. And his status is higher than anyone else's. And he washes their feet. He's not responding to a request either. It's not as if someone said, Jesus, will you do that? And he says, well, okay then. It says, the way it reads is, knowing where he's come from and where he's going. So he got up. It's like this is his decision. This is what he wanted to do. He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and so on. No one asked him to do it. He saw a need, and he met the need. Sometimes we can fulfill a serving role when someone asks us to do it, but actually we're only doing it because we're asked to do it, And as soon as there's an opportunity, we will hand that on to someone else because really we feel we're destined for higher things. No, that's not Jesus. He's not just doing it because he's asked to. He's doing it because he wants to. Because actually he sees it's utterly appropriate. And that's what we need to get hold of. The Son of God, but it's utterly appropriate. It's not that he is doing something inappropriate. He's demonstrating something very, very different here. He's clearly not resenting it. How do we know that? Well, verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, well, wait a minute. What would we expect Jesus to reply? Peter says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Now let's make up our own version of it. And Jesus replied, well, someone's got to do it. And none of you lot are willing to do it. He doesn't say that. He says, you don't realize what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Peter says, you'll never wash my feet unless I wash you You've got no part with me. Jesus isn't resenting it. He's not saying one of you really ought to be doing this, and furthermore, you should be washing my feet because I've come from God, and I'm going back to God. So come on, guys. (laughs) So I'm going to wash your feet. He's not resenting it. How often we do things, serving people, but we really wish we didn't have to do it. And we really do feel someone else ought to be doing it. And maybe, again, thoughts of status come in. 
Was I trained for this, we can indignantly think? Well, here's Jesus doing it. And not play-acting. He's not just doing it for effect. Yes, he is teaching them something, but he's not doing it for effect. How do I know that? Well, because he is the servant of the Lord. This is who he is. This comes out of his actual character. This is him. So, verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place and said, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, rightly so, that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master. Who's the master? Jesus. Well, if we're serving him, we're not greater than him, and he washes people's feet. So he's setting an example. He says, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. He's not play-acting. He's demonstrating his character and saying effectively, and none of you is greater than me. So come on. This is a different way of understanding things, a different way of behaving. Jesus is in his character, the one who comes to serve. He's full of grace. This is his wonderful, wonderful character. In his final prayer that we read in John chapter 17, John chapter 17, just another little glimpse into how he viewed things. Verse 19, this is praying to his father. He says, for them I sanctify myself. What does that mean? For them I've separated myself from temptation, from any tendency to go the wrong way. I've disciplined myself. I've learned obedience through the things I've suffered. Why? For them. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. He's always doing it for others. He's always got his mind set on others. He is the opposite of a me-centered perspective. And then I think quite incredibly, in John chapter 19, Jesus being crucified. And who can begin to imagine the agonies of that? Now, for many of us, we can be generous in our attitude towards people. We can be, have a, a serving mentality and so on. But when the pressure's on, maybe in sickness or some tragedy we're going through, then we can home in on ourselves. We think, hey, now I need some me time. Now, you know, the, what I'm going through means I've, I've now, I'm, through this, I'm number one. I've just got to be. Well, Jesus on the cross, you'd have thought, well, this is now where he's got to just think about himself. Hey, to endure that, to endure it and press through when he knows he could call on a thousand angels to release him from that. He's going to press through it. Oh, hey, this is a time when he's just going to focus on number one. Not a bit of it. John 19, verse 26 When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here's your son. And to the disciple 
here's your mother. From that time on, his disciple took her into his home. There, hanging on the cross, he sees a need. His mother is about to lose a son. Hey, he wants to take care of her. And John, I trust you. Look after her for me. Thinking about others, even in that extreme, when he could have been entirely forgiven, would have been absolutely understandable just to be thinking about what he's enduring and summoning up all that he can to see it through. But he's serving, continually serving. And then back in chapter 13, just one last thing about this incident in the upper room when Jesus washes their feet. He's serving them, and incredibly, he is not excluding the one who was totally undeserving. We read, The evening meal was being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Judas is there at the meal. We know that because um, in verse 10, Jesus says, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you're clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. Yes, Judas is there. Can you just get that? that Jesus kneels down in front of Judas and tenderly washes his feet. Later on, he's going to serve Judas first at the meal. He doesn't say it, but I wonder if he's thinking, I'll serve you first, Judas, because I know you've got a lot to do tonight. (laughs) The servant, the servant. Serving the totally undeserving, where we would be tempted, well, yeah, okay, if I've got to serve, I'll serve just the people I like. The people who I think maybe deserve it. No, that's not Jesus. And although the disciples could not understand what he was up to, they, it, it, it blew their minds because that's not the way we naturally think. Later on, they got the message. And it's interesting to see Several times in the book of Acts, they refer to Jesus when they're praying about him. They say, Lord, your servant Jesus, your servant. Yeah, they got it. He's a servant. Right, so why focus on Jesus? Well, because that's always a good thing to do. But here in Romans chapter 12, it's talking about being a body. Whose body? The body of Christ. And we're here to show the world what Jesus is like. And what's Jesus like? Well, among other things, he's the servant of the Lord. And so this is going to be a distinctive of the church. Yes, it's a spiritual gift. But before we look at the gift, we look at something that is a general distinctive of the church. What indicates that we've been born again? What indicates that a change has taken place in us, that we are a new creation, is this. That we're no longer thinking about status. We're no longer looking at promotion. We're no longer wanting to be identified as having done things and being thanked or whatever. We just want to serve. And maybe you're ahead of me because... Maybe already you will have turned to Philippians chapter 2. I don't know, but we're going to turn there right now. In Philippians chapter 2, and uh, in verse 3, Paul says, Do nothing 
do nothing out of selfish ambition. Like the two disciples, James and John, can we sit one either side of you when you come into your kingdom? Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Why haven't I been chosen as a leader? Why haven't I been made an elder? Hey, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. He could have grasped equality with God. He knew he'd come from God. He was going back to God. Hey, he didn't grasp at that. He took the very nature, didn't just play act, didn't just put a mask on and pretend he was that, took the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. This is the distinctive of those who are born again, or should be. In the book of Paul's letter to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, Paul says, You, my brothers, were called to be free. But don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh, the sinful nature, but rather serve one another in love. Hey, you're free. You're not under an obligation. A servant, a slave, they're bound to do it. You're not bound. You're free. So use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's the church. People who serve one another. Jesus came... People have called him the man for others. Yes, he was always there for other people, always giving to other people. That's who he was. He came to give his life for others. This is the Son of God. And this Jesus has given us his Spirit. If we receive the Spirit of that Jesus, then what's going to happen? We're going to be like him. If we receive his Spirit... We have a new nature where we're not like people in the world who get promoted and throw their weight around and enjoy authority. Maybe you have to do that where you work. Hey, but not in the church and not in your attitude to people. Not in your attitude to people. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, the man for others. And his attitude then shapes ours. His behavior affects ours. And so, you know the old question, are you being served? No, the real question is, are you serving? So often, we can look at the church as our support network. And particularly, if we're under pressure, if we're in some kind of crisis, we look for support. Well, great, but actually, when Jesus was in crisis, he was still supporting people, still looking to serve others. Now it's, am I serving? It never stops. 
Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Just there for others, looking to see their needs met, not ours. Jesus is uniquely wonderful, but hey, in another way, not unique, because we are Christians. We are little Christs. That's what it means. And his nature has been given to us by his spirit. And so to serve, well, that's what we're called to do. And you're never promoted above it. Jesus was not promoted above it. He served right to the very end. So is there any task that you would reckon is beneath you? Is there anything that you would say is beneath you? If so, why? Jesus could have thought washing their dirty feet was beneath him. He's the son of God. No, he did it. Is there any task, any task in the church's life, in your home, anything that's beneath you? Is anyone excluded Are there people, types of people, you would not bring yourself, you could not bring yourself to serve? Jesus washed Judas' feet and served him first at the meal. (laughs) Incredible, wonderful. But this is Jesus, this is our Savior, this is the one we worship, and this is the one who has given us his spirit so that we can be like him. But here in Romans chapter 12, Paul is in this instance not talking about a general attitude. He is not talking about general behavior. He's talking about a gift. And with all of these gifts, as we've seen, there's a general application as well as the special. So there's no way, for example, you could look at these lists and say, this, this list of gifts and say, that's all very well, but actually serving is not my gift, so I'm not going to do it. Now, all of these things apply generally, but then there is the gift. What's a gift of serving? Some people have the privilege of being particularly called to be like Jesus in this matter. What a privilege. This is Jesus, the servant of the Lord, and some are called to be servants. Hey, to have his name, the servant of the Lord, to be a servant like Jesus, serving needs of other people, always thinking about other people, not serving yourself. And this gift has got to be viewed in that light. It's not the lowest of the list. It's up there at the top. It's being called to be like Jesus. Now, it says here, if, uh, if it is serving, let him serve. In other words, if God gives someone that gift, what do they do about it? Well, they serve. Now, why does it say that? Well, because it is so possible, so easy to dismiss this role, to see it as kind of a rung on the ladder. If I do this menial task, hopefully I will be seen to be doing it. Hopefully I'll be recognized as faithful in doing it. And then I'll be promoted to something more suited to my talents. (laughs) 
No, if it's serving, serve. Don't wait for the opportunity to get out of it. Don't be looking for something else. If this is your gift. Now, of course, there are some gifts that are very conspicuous. Prophecy is conspicuous. Everyone hears it. Teaching, these things are conspicuous. And we can rate those up there. And serving is the sort of thing that can be unnoticed, unrecognized, and unthanked, if there's such a word. So it's very easy to think, well, I, I don't want to do this forever. No, if, if serving, serve. Don't look for an escape route. Don't look to get out of it. It's a lifestyle thing. It's not a rung on a ladder to something better. And therefore, look to excel in it. Just as in every gift, you'd look to improve in it. Look to excel, to do it better. Well, if your gift is serving, at whatever level, then look to be better and better at it. Not for people to recognize it, but because it's what God has given you to do. Practically, well, when the church gathers, for example, there are so many serving roles. It's obvious. You just... Whatever the setting, here or at Shirecliff, when we meet together, there are so many things that need doing. And some of those serving roles are identifiable, kind of recognizable roles. And so those people will get thanked. People on the coffee rotor, people on the PA who do song management. These are identifiable roles. And thank you to all of those people. Um, But there are other things that don't have a label on them But it's just serving. Like, if this is your heart, you see a visitor come in and they look, they don't don't really know where to go. You just want to help them. You want to direct them. It's serving them. When you go downstairs, you you see there's a bit of a, a crush around the serving counter and you see someone, they'd really like a drink, but they can't muscle through. You go through and you get them a drink. It's not a role that gives you a label. It's just your heart. See other people, you want to serve them. And it's even better to do it for someone you don't like. So if someone serves you today, don't think, oh, what have I done to offend them? (laughs) Jesus served Judas. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Not looking for reward. It's not looking for for recognition, but it's a heart. So you, you, you spot needs and you do it. You may have a label as someone who's on the worship team or whatever, but maybe no label, just your gift. And so when we gather together, we need a whole army of people who will serve, and we can't function without it. But also all the time, not just when we meet together, people with this gift will be looking to help people, not just within the church, but generally it's just an attitude. Your neighbors, people who are maybe not particularly attractive to you or maybe jobs that certainly are not attractive, but you've just got a heart to do things for people. You know, maybe there's someone nearby, an elderly person, they, they struggle to put their wheelie bin out. Or you just do it for them. You don't ask to be recognized. You don't tell them you've done it. You just serve, doing things for people. It's a gift. And it is a gift 
which means it's supernatural. You might say, well, what is supernatural about putting a wheelie bin out? Well, not a lot. But the gift is supernatural because it operates on a level of faith and it operates on a level of maybe perception. That you're spotting something that maybe other people had not spotted. You're seeing a need that maybe other people had completely overlooked. But God is showing you. God is showing you something you can do. And then it requires faith to say, well, I'm going to do it. And you'll be on target. You'll be doing things for people just when they needed it, just how they needed it, and you're bringing God to them. That's what these gifts are about, bringing Christ to people. It's a wonderful gift and so easily overlooked. And when we think of spiritual gifts, we're going to think of public things, aren't we? We'll think of prophecy, tongues, interpretation, prophetic songs, preaching, whatever. We can think of things that are very public. No, Jesus knelt down, washed their feet. It's it's lowly. It's the sort of thing that normally would not have been noticed. And it's a wonderful, wonderful gift that demonstrates Christ to people. Our desire, surely, is to worship Jesus. And here's a good reason for worshiping him. He's the servant of the Lord. What a savior. He's worth worshiping. His character, so wonderful, so amazing. Want to worship him. Here's why. And if we want to be like Jesus, then here's how. To serve one another in love, to look for opportunities, not to say people aren't doing it for me. That's not an issue anymore. No, you become a person for others. I want to see what you can do for them. To be like Jesus. This is what he's like. He's wonderful. Let's pray.